The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles uh, with me and open up to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. We're still in the introduction to the book of Romans, and we'll be in the introduction to the book until we get down to verse 16. Uh, But the introduction of this book is already meaty, it's already stuffed, it's already packed. In just four verses, as I mentioned to you before, Paul covers the priority of the ministry, the gospel of God, the nature of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, the dual authorship of Scripture, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the kingdom of Christ, the lordship of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, all in just four verses. And like I mentioned before, that's all before he says grace to you and peace. Uh, So hasn't even said hello formally to the Romans yet, but uh, Paul's heart is just so full of the power and truth that he's about to convey that he can't help it from spilling out. He's got to let it out. And it all started with just the mention of the word gospel in verse 1. Just the word gospel alone opened up the floodgates for Paul. He can't just mention the gospel and move on. He has to stop, expand, because the gospel was the focus of his life and ministry. And there's no way to understand the heart of the Apostle Paul if you don't understand the message that he preached. He bleeds the gospel. And uh, just by way of... uh, introduction and uh, just to review briefly, uh, the last time we were here together, we observed that Paul was introducing himself to the churches of Rome. And he introduced himself, first of all, as a bondservant of Jesus Christ in verse 1. A bondservant, somebody who's in bondage to, subject to the will of another, uh, one who gives himself up to the will of another. And that's true for all of us the moment that we come to faith in Jesus Christ. We give up our wills to Jesus Christ We deny ourselves, we pick up our cross, we follow after him. He is the Lord. You can't have Jesus as Savior and not have him as Lord. Either he is Lord or he is not your Savior. Uh, So we accept Jesus Christ and abandon our rights for the sake of Christ. He also introduced himself as one who is sent by Christ. He's called as an apostle. An apostle is somebody who's been sent, a messenger who's been sent with authority. Uh, So he's been sent on a mission Uh, with authority by Christ. Uh, One lexicon says that uh, that word apostle carries the the further thought of authorization, commissioning with a task. Uh, So Paul was in that uh, unique and limited group of men uh, who spoke with the authority of Christ himself. So Paul is ministering with the authority of Jesus Christ as his representative. So when Paul speaks, the Lord speaks. The Lord of the church speaks when Paul speaks. So we're accepting Jesus' word when we accept Paul's word. You can't have Jesus and get rid of Paul. It's our responsibility as a church just to get in line, to fall in line, to subject ourselves to the word of God. And as uh, the Apostle Paul himself said, uh, that he gives thanks that when we receive the word, that it's not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which performs its work in you who believe. And then finally, Paul introduces himself as set apart, set apart, For the gospel concerning 
Christ. He's set apart for the gospel concerning Christ. He's set apart for the gospel of God, which goes on to say that he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. And this is where Paul just gets lost in the glory of the good news. This is what he's been set apart for. He's just lost in the glory of it. Just like the, the priest of the Old Testament were set apart for the, the temple service, Paul says, I'm set apart for the gospel service. And the sacrifices that I bring to the Lord are the conversion of lost souls. I, I bring to the Lord those who I'm ministering to as a priest the gospel of God. So my offering of the Gentiles, the obedience of the Gentiles is coming up before you, Lord, as an acceptable and sanctified offering by the Holy Spirit. So the work that Paul did, the work that Paul was dedicated to was gospel work. And gospel work always requires that you use words. Uh, there, there's no such thing as ministering the gospel without using words because the gospel is a message. Uh, the, the gospel is uh, the Greek word euangelion. It means good news. So how can you share the good news if you don't share the good news? <laughs> The gospel means good news, and Paul dedicated himself to the proclamation of the good news, the promotion of it, the advancement of it. S. Lewis Johnson writes, the apostle was a man who had seen the risen Messiah and had been appointed by him to plant the flag of faith in every community to which the master led him. And the last time we were here in, in Romans, we began examining the, the rich theological motivations for Paul to plant the gospel flag wherever he was. And the first was this, that God is the source of the message. The gospel is initiated by the Father. At the end of verse 1, it says it's the gospel of God. And when Paul says that the message is the gospel of God, you could understand Paul to be saying uh, that this is the news about God or the, the news that God brings. And what Paul is saying is that this is the news that God brings to us because in verse 2 it says, which he promised. This is news that God is bringing to us. And the last time we were here, we mentioned that this salvation itself is God's plan. This is God the Father's plan for us. And sometimes we can think about salvation as if the, the Father was reluctant to, to grant it and that the, the Son is holding back the, the hand of the Father from bringing judgment to sinners. But this is God the Father's plan. It's his plan to bring salvation to mankind. And, and the Son agrees to come to be the, the sacrifice for sin, but it's God the Father's plan. It's not Jesus having to convince the Father against his will to come and be the sacrifice for mankind. This is God the Father's plan for this to happen. So we shouldn't think about God's eternal plan of redemption as if Christ is convincing God to save men but this is God's plan in alignment with the will of Christ to, to save sinners. So like I said, sinners are in the hands of an angry God, but it's, it's his hands that withholds the judgment. God is withholding the punishment, and he is the one that's sending the sacrifice for sin. He's the one who's sending salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of of reconciliation. You know, we just sang that song, God and man at table are sat down. Speaking about the reconciliation between God and man. Whose idea was that? It's God's idea that we would be at his table. It's God's idea that, that we would be reconciled to himself. It's God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So God is not a reluctant member 
uh, you know, the, the Father is not a reluctant member of the Trinity in our salvation. God determined to set his love and affection upon you. And like I mentioned last time, MacArthur put it this way, there's never been a time when God did not love you. That it's, it's been a part of his eternal plan to bring you into his love, to bring you into to fellowship, into reconciliation with himself. We also looked at how the gospel was uh, promised in the word of God. In Romans 1 and verse 2, it says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. So it's good news, but it's not new news. God promised this news to us through the scriptures. And the, the book of Romans has been called the theology of the Old Testament. From the, the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, we were promised that there would come a seed that would deal the death blow to the serpent. That all the families of the earth would be blessed in this seed who would come. That there would come a ruler from Judah. That the throne of his kingdom would be established forever. That he would be born of a virgin. That he would be born in Bethlehem. That he would present himself in Jerusalem on a donkey, even the colt, the foal of a donkey. That he would be despised and forsaken of men. That he would be pierced through for our transgressions. That they would pierce his hands and his feet and divide his garments among them and cast lots for his clothing. And that his soul would not be abandoned to Sheol, but that the Holy One would not undergo decay. He would rise again from the grave. All of that predicted in the Old Testament. And that's just like crossing the surface of it. There, there's so much that's, that's, that's shown in the Old Testament to point us to Jesus Christ. That this is God's plan and has been his plan from the very beginning. That Jesus Christ is the Savior who was crucified before the foundation of the world. That it was already in the plan of God that he would bring a Savior to bring a salvation even before he set the world into motion. God already had the plan for how he would redeem you. That is God's plan from the beginning. And there's never been a time when God had to sit down and like, hmm, what am I going to do now? You know, Adam and Eve, what are you doing? Let me break the emergency box open to try to save you. Like, that's not what God is thinking. It's God has this plan from the very beginning. He had the plan. He already knew what Adam and Eve would do and already determined what the plan and the solution would be from the very beginning. Before he said, let there be, he already had a plan for who would come to bring mankind back to himself. This, this is the plan of God. And all throughout the Old Testament, there's these prophecies of the promised Messiah. And the words of Scripture are not just ordinary words. These are holy words through his prophets in the holy scriptures. So when we preach the gospel, we're preaching a message that is initiated by God. We're using God's words to give God's message because it's promised in his word. And this message finally is concerning his son. It's about his son. Look at verse 3, and this is where we left off last time. The gospel is not just a message. The gospel is a person. Take a look at uh, verses 1 down to 4 again. Let's read our text. It says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Why don't you bow with me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and as we always do, now, Father, recognizing that you are the God who authored this word, and we have to come to you if we're to understand it. Now, Father, I pray that you would open up our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things in your word. 
Uh, Father, I pray that as we uh, behold the, the wonderful contours of the gospel, uh, Father, that you would uh, just rejoice our hearts in this. And Father, for those who have not trusted in the gospel, Lord, that today would be the day that they would bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word, your word that is so clear. And uh, Father, I pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is the good news. Jesus is the good news. Christ is the message of Christianity. There's no such thing as Christianity without Christ. There's no such thing as a, a Christless Christianity. And I know you've run across this before and so have I, but there's people who want to borrow the teaching of Christianity who want nothing to do with Jesus. It's usually prefaced by something like, you know, you know the good book says, and then they fill in the blank. Or a politician may say, you know, in the words of Jesus, and kind of use a quote out of context to support his point. Or somebody might say, you know, doesn't the Bible say, and use the Bible. And the assumption is, is that you can, you know, just kind of take a statement here or there from Jesus, but you really don't have to embrace him. You know, you can, you can benefit from his teachings. I mean, he's, he said a lot of great things. You know, we, we especially love the, the ones on, on loving, loving your neighbor. We like that stuff. You know, we like the, the stuff on maybe even turning the other cheek. Oh, that was, that's very noble. You know, we, we especially like the ones that say, judge not. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Doesn't the Bible say, judge not, lest ye be judged? You know, unbelievers always like to, to pick on verses like that. But the problem is, is that they want to accept the words of Christ that they like, but they don't want to accept all of who Christ is. But you can't have... Christianity without Jesus. Jesus is Christianity. And Jesus is not just like some other prophet or guru or ancient mystic. You can't have Christianity with, without Christ because Jesus is the message of Christianity. James Montgomery Boyce, he quotes uh, J.N.D. Anderson, uh, director of the Institute of Advanced Legal Studies at the University of London. Listen to what he says. He says, in Confucianism and Buddhism, it is the teaching and the principles of Confucius and the Buddha which represent the essence of the religion rather than the teacher who first enunciated them or the facts of his life and death. Even in Islam, the towering figure of Muhammad finds its paramount importance in the divine revelation which, is, which it believes was given to mankind through him. It is the words recorded in the Quran together with that further teaching provided by the inspired Sunnah or practice of the prophet, which constitute the essence of the faith. And a Muslim would point back to the book and the traditions rather than to Muhammad himself as the media of revelation. In other words, you can have Confucianism without Confucius. You can have Buddhism without Buddha. You can have Islam without Muhammad. You can have anybody that just gives the teaching. Anybody can substitute if it's just giving a message. But contrast, Christianity is Jesus Christ. You can't have the message without the messenger. You can't have the message without Jesus because Jesus himself is the message. John R.W. Stott wrote this, The person and work of Christ are the rock upon which the Christian religion is built. If he is not who he said he is and he did not do what he said he did, the foundation is undermined and the whole superstructure will collapse. Take Christ from Christianity and you disembowel it. You rip the guts out of it. 
You take the heart out of it. Christ is the center of Christianity. All else is circumference. It's just what's on the outside. I remember uh, my, my pastor and mentor, Tom Leake, saying it this way. He said that the gospel is not a plan. The gospel is a person. The gospel is a person. And Jesus is that person. He is the gospel. He's the content of the message that we preach. That's why in 1 Corinthians 1 and 23 it says, but we preach Christ crucified. He's the message. We preach Christ. Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. We proclaim him. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 2 says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's no way to divorce Jesus from the message of Christianity and leave the message intact. That's why Stott says, take Christ from Christianity and you disembowel it. You rip the heart straight out. All religions don't teach the same thing. You've ever heard that? People say, oh, all religions basically teach the same thing. Don't you believe it? <laughs> don't you believe it? I mean, first of all, that's plainly you know, contradictory. I mean, there's all kinds of teachings that contradict one another. But, but people, basically, when they say that, what they're meaning to say is that, you know, all religions basically teach you to do the right thing. You know, you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't commit adultery unless you're in certain religions, and then you can have more than one wife. But, you know, you know all the details, you know, don't, don't worry about the details. They're all basically saying the same thing, aren't they? But Christianity doesn't just teach a way to, to live. It's not an ethic. It's not a system of morality. What we preach is Christ. That, that is our message. Jesus is our message. Without Jesus, there's no good news to preach. There's no gospel without Jesus. Calvin says, whoever departs from him departs from the gospel. If there is not a lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, we're all heading to the day of judgment without a defense. If we don't have a savior from sins, we're all heading down the path of destruction and there is no way out. If Jesus is not the savior, you're still in your sins, you're going to perish and your faith is worthless. I don't care how strong your faith is. You know, people want to talk about, I have faith. Your, your faith is only as good as the object that you place your faith in. It doesn't matter how much faith you have. You know, I, I can have faith that I can walk on the moon. But it doesn't mean that it's true. I believe I can fly. It doesn't matter what you believe. You're not flying. And it's only because there is a Savior that there is any good news to preach. Jesus is the good news, and Paul squeezes the gospel concerning the Son into two verses. It's incredible what Paul is able to pack into just two verses. And the longer I look at it is the more I'm impressed with what Paul is able to do. But let's take a look at these couple of verses, verses 3 and, and 4. And uh, S. Lewis Johnson, he says, At this point, the reader is brought face to face with a passage that would surely rank with Paul's greatest Christological passages were it not for the difficulty of interpretation. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But, but what we find here is just so rich. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. It says, concerning his son. The gospel is concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who has declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. And just consider the, the parallel 
statements that you find here. You find in verse 3, his son. Verse 4, our Lord. Verse 3, born of a descendant of David. Verse 4, declared the Son of God with power. Verse 3, according to the flesh. Verse 4, according to the spirit of holiness. And, and it's just a, a beautiful symmetry that we find here, much like what we find in uh, Philippians 2, Colossians 1, 1 Timothy 3, 16, the, just these concise statements of faith. Uh, many people would consider these early uh, hymns of Christ, like uh, 1 Timothy 3, 16, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness who was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. You know, just all these, these statements that just kind of, you know, find a parallel within the, the statement itself. And, and what we find here is just a, a beautiful parallelism. And each of these statements could be a, a message on its own, even the, the, the resurrection that's also included here. But the point that Paul is driving at is that all of this is connected to the gospel. It's all connected to the good news. And that's what I'm set apart to preach and, and basically, he gives you the, the gospel in a summary form, and then throughout the rest of the book of Romans, he's going to explode it to show all of the different facets of this gospel message. And the first element of this gospel is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And we pick that up in the phrase, concerning his son. Concerning his son. This is a gospel that is concerning his son. And when Romans uses the language of sonship, for Jesus Christ, it's a reference to his identity as God. Uh, theologians refer to this as eternal sonship, relating uh, Jesus to the Father as son in a way that nobody else can relate to the Father as son. Jesus is son in eternity. He has eternally related to God, the Father, as son, which means that there was never a time when the Father was not the Father because there was never a time when the Son was not the Son. And they eternally existed in that relationship with one another. And the unity between the Father and the Son is a, a unity of being. They're, they're one in essence, uh, which is why Jesus can say in John 10 and verse 30, I and the Father are one. They're, they're united in being, united in essence. For Jesus to claim that he was the Son of the Father was to claim that he was equal with the Father, which is exactly what the Jewish people who gathered around him understood from his statement. Because in John 10 and verse 31, it says the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And they said, the Jews answering him said, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you being a man make yourself out to be God. We, we know what you're trying to say. When, when you're saying you're the son of the Father, when you're saying you're one with the Father, we know what you're trying to say. You're saying you have an identity with God. You're saying you're, you're one in being with God. To be a son of God in the sense that Jesus spoke of it was to be equal with God, to possess all the divine qualities, all the divine attributes, to be one with the Father before the world existed, which is why in John 17 and verse 5, he says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. As one author says, he possessed all the majesty of deity, performed all of its functions, enjoyed all of its prerogatives. He was adored by his father, worshipped by the angels. He was invulnerable to pain, to frustration, to embarrassment. 
He existed in unclouded serenity. His supremacy was total. His satisfaction complete. His blessedness perfect. Such a condition was not something he had secured by effort. It was the way things were and had always been. And there was no reason why they should change. So when Paul says that this gospel is concerning his son or God's son, he's including in that designation all that Jesus is as the divine son, as one in essence with the father. The title, as John Murray says, refers to a relation which the son sustains to the father independently of his manifestation in the flesh. So before he came in the flesh, he was already the son of the father, eternally son of the father. Jesus was the son of God before he came to earth, which is why Romans says that God sent his son. The son preexisted, and then he sent him. Romans chapter 8, verse 3, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. Jesus is identified by a title that expresses his eternal relationship to the Father. And if you had any questions about what was meant by that phrase concerning his son, all you need to do is consider the parallel statement down in verse 4, Jesus Christ, our Lord. <laughs> That's what he means by being a son. He's, he's the Lord. And the word Lord is the, the Greek word kurios, and it's used consistently in the book of Romans to translate the covenant name for God in the Old Testament, that Jesus is Yahweh or Jehovah, the Old Testament name for God. That's who he is. He's the Lord. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Who are we talking about? Jesus. And Jesus is God because that's quoted from the Old Testament where the name Yahweh is used. All of that is to say when Paul speaks of the gospel concerning his son, Paul is speaking about the second person of the Trinity. Jesus being God. God who is blessed forever, who is over all, amen, Romans chapter 9 and verse 5. So there's no such thing as a gospel that doesn't recognize Jesus as being God. And that's actually the confession that the church is built on. Matthew 16, 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember Peter said that? And then down in verse 18, Jesus says, upon this rock, that confession that you just made, upon this rock, I will build my church. Romans 10, 9, and if you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord. That's, that's the confession that, that allows entrance through the door of salvation. That I'm confessing him as Lord. I recognize who he is. Do you recognize that when you come to Jesus for salvation, you're not just believing in facts, but you're believing in a person? It's not just I, I believe that he came and that he died and that he rose again, but I believe in him. It's not just a, a series of facts. I believe in him. I trust in him. I've given my life to him. He says, uh, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You, you come to me. You come to me as a person. You're trusting in me. You're not just trusting in facts and teachings. You're trusting in me as a person. Jesus says in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is connected to a relationship with Jesus Christ, that I know him, that I've given my life to him. So we are confessing Jesus as Lord as a person. We're entering into a relationship with him. So again, he's more than just a good teacher. It's more than just an example to follow. He is the Lord of glory, and the gospel is concerning 
the son. But he was also not just a son, but he was also a descendant who was born in this earth. He was truly man. He's fully God, and he's truly man. Look at verse 3 again. It says, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. The eternal son who preexisted the world was miraculously born as a descendant of David according to the flesh. And this phrase turns the corner from the glories of heaven to speak about the humanity of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, the word flesh is uh, the word sarks. It speaks of humanity, includes the idea of frailty, weakness. Jesus in another place said that the flesh is, is weak. And Jesus entered into that weakness. He entered into that, that, that frailty. He became flesh. He took on our weaknesses. He was made in our likeness while never succumbing to our temptations. He was made in our likeness. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 speaks about this. It speaks about uh, how we do not have a, a high priest. Remember we were talking about the book of Hebrews earlier. You know, the book of Hebrews compares Jesus to all these figures and ceremonies of the Old Testament and compares Jesus to the high priest. But the high priest of the Old Testament seemed a, a little bit more approachable. Because what did the high priest have to do before he offered a sacrifice for your sins? He had to offer up a sacrifice for his own. So he seems like a little more relatable. Like, you know, hey, I'm bringing you my sacrifice, but hey, I know what you had to do before I came here. You had to offer up a sacrifice for your sins. So I feel like we understand one another. I sin and you sin. You know, we all sin, right? Everywhere a sin sin. You know, we all, we all sin. So you come to the high priest understanding that, like, hey, I know you've sinned. And I've sinned, you can sympathize with my weakness. But now we're called to come to Christ as a high priest. And the question is, is is Jesus going to understand me? Can Jesus relate to me? Because Jesus has never sinned. You know, there's no bringing my sacrifice to him and kind of wink, wink. I I, I know what you did. No, there's there's none of that. But Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Jesus can still say, come to me, I know where you've been. I I understand where you've been. I understand your temptations. I understand your weakness. I've never succumbed to them. I've never fallen to your weaknesses, but I understand you. You can come boldly before the throne of grace for help in the time of need. That should be an encouragement to us, isn't it? That Jesus understands me. I can bring my my confession to him, understanding that, that he can sympathize with my weaknesses. But he knew no sin, without sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he, he knew no sin. 1 John 3, 5 says there is no sin. In him there is no sin. He was truly man, but he never sinned. But he experienced all that there was to being a man besides that. He never used his divine privileges to soften the blows of living in a sin-cursed world. One theologian describes the restraint of the Son of God. He says, never once does he in his own interest or in his own defense, break the parameters of humanity. He had no place to lay his head, but he never built himself a house. You know, he could have just walked in the wilderness and said, house, right? (laughs) But he never did that. He was thirsty, but he provided himself no drink. He was assaulted by the powers of hell, but he did not call on the legions of angels. Even when he saw the full cost of his self-emptying, he didn't ask for a rewrite of the script. He bore the sin in his own body, endured the sorrow in his own human soul, redeemed the church with his human blood, 
The power which carried the world, stilled the tempest, raised the dead, was never used to make his own conditions easier. Neither was the prestige he enjoyed in heaven exploited to relax the rules of engagement. He deployed no resources beyond those of his spirit-filled humanity. He faced the foe as flesh and triumphed as a man. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Jesus came not just um, uh, with us to be God with us. He came to be God like us. He came to live life like us. That I'm going to go through what you go through. And I'm not going to to pull on my, my infinite power in order to make my life easier. I'm going to go through the same thing that you go through. Jesus Christ lived our life. And even his birth in the line of David didn't provide him with any earthly advantages. By the time the Davidic line got down to Jesus, it was nothing but a stump on a dry root. Uh, One author says, What family had there been in the world more glorious than that of David, the great king of Israel, most honored and beloved of the prophet and king? And what family was more reduced or obscure when Jesus was born? Actually, if you follow the descendants of, of David down through the deportation to Babylon, one of the kings was so corrupt that a curse was placed on his line so that no king would ever come from one of his descendants. Actually, uh, flip back real quick to Jeremiah 22. Keep your finger in uh, Romans chapter 1. Uh, flip back to, to Jeremiah. Because this is, this is fascinating. Jeremiah 22. Verses uh, 24 to 30, a curse is pronounced on a king named Jeconiah, who's also called Keniah, and it's utterly devastating. Look at uh, Jeremiah 22. Look at verse, start at verse 24. It says, as I live, declares the Lord, even though Keniah, and, and again, this is Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. Like the signet ring is, you know, what the, the kings would, would use for their, their privileges to stamp documents. Even if you were a signet ring on my hand, I'd pull you off. And I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life. Yes, into the hand of those whom you dread. Even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. Look at verse 30. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless. A man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. And God kept his word. Uh, The final king of Israel was not Jeconiah's son. It was actually Jeconiah's uncle, Zedekiah, in 2 Kings 24. And no descendant of Jeconiah ruled after Jeconiah. But Joseph was a physical descendant of Jeconiah. We find that in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 11. And if the scriptures teach that no physical descendant of Jeconiah would ever sit on the throne, how could Jesus receive the throne? Are you thinking what I'm thinking? (laughs) He's not a physical descendant of Joseph. So so he came through the legal line, you know, still got the legal right to rule from Jeconiah, but he came through a physical descendant of Mary, who was still connected to David, through another line. So Jesus, through both Mary and Joseph, was connected back to David, but he skipped Jeconiah by going through Mary. So he has the physical descent from Mary and the legal descent through Joseph. 
scriptures are just amazing, aren't they? <laughs> just amazing. If Jesus was the physical son of Joseph, he would not be able to sit on the throne. But in the genius of God, he devised a plan to pass on the legal right without passing on the physical descent. God guarded every detail, and the virgin birth solved it. The attention to detail is mind-blowing. But my point here is that Jesus' physical birth did not gain him any advantages. Joseph was from a cursed line, and Joseph and Mary were poor. The line of Jesse and David was a dry root in the ground. Nobody thought anything of the line of David. But Isaiah 11 and verse 1 says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. You know, that dry root in the ground is going to bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And even when the line looks like it's dead, God can still make the stem sprout. This is what God does. When it seems like all hope is lost, God brings life through that line and provides a savior. Isn't, isn't, isn't there a lesson in that? <laughs> in our own lives, when we think that everything is lost, Everything's gone. It's just a dry root. I mean, nothing's going to come from that. The Lord can still bring life. Keep trusting the Lord. Keep looking to God. Keep praying. God is a faithful God. And according to the flesh, Jesus was made a descendant of David, even when it seemed like all hope was lost. God fulfilled his promise to David that there would come a, a son who would build a house and establish a throne forever. And the way that was accomplished was through the son of David who would reign forever, Jesus Christ. And if Jesus is not the Messiah, then nobody is. <laughs> nobody is. And why is that? Because the records that kept track of the genealogies are lost. After 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem, nobody could prove that they came through the right line to receive the right to rule. So how could anybody prove that they're a descendant of David that bypassed Jeconiah if you have no records to prove that. One author says, if he has not yet come, it was to no purpose that the prophets foretold that he should descend from a certain family since all the genealogies of the Jews are now lost. You know, you can bring that one up the next time you're sitting with a, a Jewish friend to say, like, how, how do you make this work? <laughs> how, how do you determine that the Messiah has really come through the line of David? You, there's no way to prove that. And how do you bypass Jeconiah? You ever saw that one? <laughs> In, the, in the, the wisdom, the genius of God, he made this plan. How do we have a Messiah who can't prove himself? Jesus was able to prove himself. He proved himself through the legal line of Joseph, through the physical descent of Mary, and the national records during the reign of Caesar Augustus. He called them all back for a census and proved it all right. It's an incredible prophecy. So the gospel concerns Jesus, and it's about one who is fully God, who is truly man, and finally, he's the only Savior. Look at verse 4. Who is declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is such a, a powerful statement, but the, the language here is not as straightforward as it seems. First of all, the word for declared, who was declared the Son of God with power in the NASB, it's actually a, a word that's not translated as declared anywhere else in Scripture. It's a word that's translated as determined, predetermined, appointed, fixed. It's from the, the Greek horizo, which is where we get our English word horizon, like the, the demarcation between the sky and the, the land or the sky and the sea, like that line in between. 
that line that, that marks them out as being different, uh, the horizon, the horizon. Also, uh, a word that was used to, to mark out land boundaries, you know, one person's property from another, the line that separated the two. It's translated in the LSB as designated, which is a good translation. It's a word for designate, to set somebody apart for something. You know, the, the, the root of this same word was used for the Apostle Paul back in verse 1 where he said to be set apart for the gospel, designated for the gospel. But the question is, how can somebody who's eternally the Son of God be designated or set apart to be the Son of God? That doesn't make sense. And doesn't that leave the door open for this idea that, you know, Jesus wasn't always the Son of God? There's this heresy known as adoptionism that taught that Jesus was not always the Christ. The Spirit of Christ came upon him at baptism and it left before the crucifixion, which makes a mockery of the crucifixion. And also of the scriptures that said that the word of God was made flesh. Jesus Christ was made flesh. The, the son became flesh. But that's not what this verse is teaching. We've actually established that the eternal son was always the son. And he was made flesh and dwelt among us. And the subject of these verses is the eternal son. But during his incarnation, and this is the key here, during his incarnation, he lived in humility. The Son of God lived in humility. Flip over to Philippians chapter 2. This is the, the truth that we learn over in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, take a look at uh, verse 5. And this, this, is, this is incredible. This is exciting. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. It says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God or in very nature God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Uh, the King James says it, he didn't consider it robbery, which makes it look like he's taken something that doesn't belong to him. But uh, this word is understood as a prize, something to be held on to at all costs. You know, something that's a, 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 a prize, a, a treasure to be held on to. So we understand Paul to be saying that, that Christ did not hold on to his attributes with his clenched fist and refuse to let go of his privileges. I, I, I like all that I'm enjoying in heaven. I will not let it go. I'm going to clench to these privileges. I'm, I'm going to refuse to let these exercise of my attributes go. That's not what Jesus did. He did not think of his existence in a manner equal to God as something to cling to for his own benefit instead of coming down to earth to be the incarnate Son of God. At no time did Jesus ever lose his rights he never lost his privileges that he had as God, but what he did do was he voluntarily gave up the free exercise of those benefits. So Jesus, when he walked the earth, he became hungry, he became thirsty, he became tired, and out of all the miracles that Jesus performed, how many were performed for himself? None of them. Jesus let go of his, the voluntary use of his prerogatives as God. He didn't even command the stones to become bread to feed himself when he was in the wilderness. He was the perfect model of humility that I'm willing to let go of my rights for the sake of another. And that's actually the point of Philippians chapter 2, that you're to look at Jesus and his life and have that attitude in yourselves because we're the very opposite. We cling to every right we can get. We're, we're, we're constantly fighting for more rights. And that's why many of us have problems in our marriages because like this is mine and that's mine. And that's yours, and this is mine. 
And we don't want to lay down our rights for the sake of somebody else. You know, I, I squeezed my toothpaste from the bottom, and you squeezed it from the middle. That toothpaste is my right. We have all kinds of rights that we're holding on to. But Jesus was willing to let go of all of his rights. I'm not, I'm not going to hold on to these prerogatives that I have. And the picture that comes to mind is of the king who's the sovereign ruler over his entire country. And instead of walking throughout his land and all the privileges that belong to him, he picks up the clothes of a beggar. And he wanders around his own kingdom looking for scraps to feed himself. And this is what Jesus did. That even though he was rich, 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, even though he was rich, for our sake he became poor. So that through him we might become rich. This is what Jesus did for us. He emptied himself, verse 7 says. Taking up the, the form of a bondservant. The eternal God who is equal in power and majesty to God. He takes up the form of a, a bondservant. He didn't relate to the father as an equal, but he related to the father as a slave. He took on himself all the human limitations of weakness and frailty. He had to grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with man. I mean, you ever think about that? Jesus had to learn his ABCs. He had to learn how to talk. He had to learn how to, how to socialize with people. Jesus had to learn all these things. He gave up his rights to become like us. And going beyond that, Verse 8 says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. He was obedient to the death on the cross, which means that he had a choice. And what did he do? Not as I will, but your will be done. I'm willing to lay it down. I'm willing to lay it down. He died out of obedience to the Father. He says, nobody's taken my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. Crucifixion was reserved for the lowest of the low. Death for slaves, the worst criminals of society, a slow death of torture. Uh, you, you didn't crucify somebody if you just wanted to take them out quick, right? They, they had other means for that. You know, the Jewish form of execution was stoning. The Roman execution was the sword. You only use crucifixion if you wanted to drag out death. It wasn't to put somebody to death. It was to prolong death. That's what crucifixion was. And Jesus was subjected to that. Stripped of his clothes, beaten, mocked, nailed to a tree for everybody to pass by and laugh and scorn. Jesus, as the God-man, after his humiliation, he only knew humiliation. That's what he knew during his life. His life as the God-man. He, he, he longed for the glory that he had with the Father before the world was, but in his experience, all that he knew was humiliation. And it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ that set the boundary. That was the, the line of demarcation. It's the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection was the definitive break between humiliation and exaltation. And it designates Jesus as the Son of God, now in power. He was always the Son of God, but now the resurrection designates him as the Son of God in power. As a result of his obedience to the Father, and this is why it says in verse 9, for this reason, for what reason? Because he submitted himself to the Father's will. Because he was willing to go to the cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him. 
and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's why Acts 2.36 says, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. He's no longer the, the man of humiliation. Now he's the man of exaltation. Now the God-man is, is being exalted. Let all people know that he is Lord, that he is Christ. His resurrection was the first step to his exaltation. And I was helped by Martin Luther in his commentary on Romans. Listen to this. He says, Just as the Son of God by his humiliation and self-emptying became the Son of David in weakness of the flesh, so now conversely he is ordained and appointed to be the Son of God with omnipotence and glory. And just as he emptied himself of his form of God to deep lowliness of the flesh, and so was born into the world, so now he elevated himself from his form of a servant to the full form of deity and ascended into heaven. He was always the Son of God and remains the same forever, yet he did not exercise it in his state of humiliation. He therefore was not yet regarded as the Son of God, and again by those that looked on him, and that is what the words declared to be the Son of God with power express. This man, the Son of David, according to the flesh, is now publicly made known as the Son of God with power. That is, the omnipotent Lord of all things, after he had been subjected to all things in weakness as the Son of David. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, he was always the Son of God, but after the resurrection, he is now the Son of God in power. It's his exaltation, and the resurrection was the line of demarcation from humility to glory. And if he was resurrected, that meant that he first had to die. He had to die. He died as the Lamb of God. And only Jesus could take the death that we deserved. Only Jesus could satisfy the wrath of God for our sins. Only Jesus could offer God perfect righteousness in our place. Only Jesus could be our sinless substitute. And only Jesus was raised from the dead to say that his satisfaction was complete and he paid our debt in full. John 19.30 says, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. It's over. And he was raised according to the spirit of holiness. There's a question about this phrase as well. Some would argue that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit, that if this was a reference to the Holy Spirit, you know, why didn't Paul just say the Holy Spirit? And where else do we see the Holy Spirit raising Jesus from the dead. So they would understand this verse to be talking about Jesus' own spirit, that his spirit of holiness is what he was raised according to. According to the spirit of his holiness, you know, Jesus was raised because he was holy, which is true. You know, Psalm 16, verse 10 says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your holy one to undergo decay. So Jesus was raised because he was holy, because he was righteous. But the spirit of holiness was a Jewish way to speak about the Holy Spirit. And if this was a hymn of Jewish origin, that it would fit very well with that. Also, there's evidence later in the book of Romans that the Holy Spirit was at work in the resurrection. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. It says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So Jesus was raised by the Holy Spirit, and guess who else is raised by the Holy Spirit? We are. <laughs> We're going to follow him, that just as he was raised, we will be raised. 
Just as he was raised by the Spirit, we will be raised by the Spirit. So it's appropriate to say that the Father raised Christ from the dead. Acts 2.24, God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death. It would be appropriate to say that Jesus raised himself from the dead. John 2.19, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And it's also appropriate to say that the Spirit raised Christ from the dead. The Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. Which actually demonstrates that all three persons of the Trinity are at work in your salvation. Which is actually what I believe this passage is teaching us. The Father is not reluctant in your salvation. He's the one who promised it and planned it. The Son is not reluctant in your salvation. He's the one who guaranteed the purchase of your salvation. The Spirit is not reluctant in your salvation. He's the one who put his seal upon Jesus Christ by raising him from the dead. And that's good news, isn't it? It's good news. It's objectively good news. But the question is, has it become good news for you? At the end of verse 4, it says, According to the Spirit of holiness, speaking about Jesus Christ being declared the Son of God with power, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul can say that Jesus is our Lord because we've trusted in him. We've placed our faith in him. We've repented from our sins. We love him. We long for the day when he will return. He's, he's my Lord. I submit my life to him. I've denied myself. I've taken up his cross. I follow after him. He's my Lord. I take him as my possession. His righteousness is my righteousness. His death is my death. He's my Lord. He belongs to me. And only those who take Jesus as their Lord can say that this salvation is mine. That this is good news for me. Because he belongs to me. Because only Jesus could take the death that I deserve to die. Only Jesus could satisfy the wrath of God on my behalf. Only Jesus could provide perfect righteousness in my place. Only Jesus could be the substitute, a sinless substitute on my behalf. Only Jesus was raised from the dead to, to prove that he satisfied the wrath of God, that the sacrifice was complete, that his righteousness was, was, was accepted. Only Jesus could do that. But if you don't have Jesus, you have none of this. If Jesus is not your Lord, you have none of the benefits of his life and death. None of them. They don't belong to you because he's not your Lord. But whether you call on the name of Jesus or not, Jesus is still Lord. <laughs> he's still Lord. But why not call on him and make him yours? Why not call on him and make him your Lord? Jesus is Lord regardless of whether you acknowledge him or not. He is Lord. He can't help but to be Lord. He's eternally been Lord. He's been declared to be Lord. But the question is, is are you acknowledging him? Are you going to acknowledge him as that or not? Is he your Lord? But whether you call him Lord or not, he is Lord. And just as the Son of God in his humiliation became the Son of David in weakness, he's going to come back in omnipotence and glory. There's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord to the glory of God the Father. But will that confession be pulled out of your mouth because it's too late and you can't help but to acknowledge the truth on that day? 
Is that when it's going to come? Or is it going to come now when you just willingly bow the knee and say, yes, he's mine. (laughs) He is my Lord. I receive him. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for this truth. We thank you for uh, the book of Romans and all that it displays for us, God. Father, there's just so much that we find here and so much more to come. Father, we just thank you, our Lord, for this revelation of who Jesus Christ is, the Lord, the, the King of glory. And Father, I pray that you would help us as those who read these words, the, the holy scriptures, the, the revelation, Lord, even from, from times past, from ancient times, given down, delivered to us, Lord, that we would pick up this word and, and understand that there's no way around this. And Father, that we, we, need, we need to accept Christ as who he is, the Lord of glory, the one who's coming back, the one who humbled himself so that he would become our substitute. Father, I pray that we would receive him even now for those who have not. And for those of us who have, Lord, I pray that, that we would be caught up in the, the glory of who he is. Father, I pray that you would be honored and glorified. Even in our midst today, we pray in Jesus' name. We praise you and give you thanks. Amen. Just for a word of benediction, I'll read from 1 Timothy three sixteen. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness, who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.